This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I am your host, Stephen Kent, and I'm not hosting this week's episode. Surprise! <laughs> yeah, this is a bonus uh, episode, and we're bringing you a, an extra conversation um, had by contributor John Liang. He's a contributor here at Beltway Banthas, and he helps us out with the show. And he had a conversation with author, public speaker, writer, and non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point, Max Brooks. He is a senior resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Art, a Future Warfare Project, and he is the author of, yeah, World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war and the Harlem Hellfighters. Uh, Max is uh, all into Star Wars. He's got some deep thoughts on military uh, lessons that can be learned from Star Wars that should be applied today. And listen, you know, Star Wars is about the wars, and wars are steeped in politics. So that's what this episode is going to be about. Um, again, we're on an every other week schedule. Um, so if this is throwing you off, this is just kind of a little bonus uh, episode that we're going to do from time to time. We'll have stuff like this. Um, so enjoy this conversation between John Liang and Max Brooks, and catch them both at Dragon Con happening this weekend. John, take it away. Hey, Banthas. We're here with Max Brooks, one of the editors and a contributor to Strategy Strikes Back, How Star Wars Explains Modern Military Conflict. Welcome to the program, sir. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. It's kind of fitting that we're actually recording this on Memorial Day in the USA. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so before we go into like the actual book and everything else, I'm, I guess I want to start off with a few questions just about basically, so how did you become a Star Wars fan? Uh, many, many years ago, uh, in a, another century, as a matter of fact, uh, I was a little kid and I was introduced to this movie of Star Wars. And I got to say at first, I didn't really get it. I was very small and I was used to comedies and the part where R2-D2 fell over, I thought, oh, OK, I get it. <laughs> um, and then later I was I got into it and started seeing it over and over again. Right. So by the time Empire Strikes Back came out, I was like, I need to go every week. <laughs> Gotcha. Uh, what's your favorite movie and why? I think it has to be Empire Strikes Back. I think it's just the best made movie as far as story, pacing, depth, action, information. Uh, Star Wars movies aside, I just think it's a really well-made movie. Cool. Um, who's your favorite overall character and why? That is a good question. Uh you know, I've always, I've always sort of, I like different characters for different reasons. I've always been a fan of uh, Boba Fett because mm -hmm. you figure he's a clone of his dad. He loses his dad. He's an orphan. I'm always curious to see his origin story. How did he go from this, this lost child to this rabid bounty hunter? Right. Uh, I've always been a, uh, not a fan, but I've always been fascinated by Tarkin. Ooh, how so? so just this this bureaucrat, this person, uh, how did this person rise 
so far in the empire because you got to figure by the time the empire came around he was already uh he was already probably in his 60s right so what was he doing in the republic uh that made him such a prime candidate for the emperor's right hand Gotcha. You know, I don't know if you've have you actually seen or read um, the book by I think it's James Luceno called Tarkin. No, I you know I never read Tarkin. I loved the book uh, The Rise of Darth Vader. Ooh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> that was that was a good. But you know what? I should read Tarkin because I'm always fascinated by him. And and obviously that goes back to good storytelling because to choose Peter Cushing, I right. thought was uh, was just brilliant. Right, right. Uh, just saying, uh, have you had a chance to get to see Solo this weekend? I just saw it about two hours ago. Aha! Okay. <laughs> What'd you think of it? I thought it was okay. I, I didn't. I can tell you that I didn't have the same visceral love walking out of it the way I did with Rogue One. Gotcha. Okay. That you. I mean, yeah. I, I I thought that Solo was fine. It was mm -hmm. fine. It, but Rogue One is one of my favorite Star Wars movies of all time. You could definitely tell that the folks who did Rogue One, it was one of those, like particularly like the last 40 minutes, which is you know the whole Battle of Scarif and everything else, a lot of those people were animators who grew up, clearly are folks maybe like our age or younger, who grew up watching these movies as kids and wanted to be, want, basically wanted to, better, like, I guess, better their elders kind of thing. Yeah. And, and you could t what I loved about Rogue One was I, I felt like it was channeling the original George Lucas uh, who was making the original Star Wars. Mm -hmm. I feel like by the time Return of the Jedi came around, the powers that be thought, wait a minute, our audience is children. Our right. audience is toy buyers. Mm -hmm. So that's why we need to put in Ewoks and <laughs> things that we can sell. But Rogue One, I felt, was intelligent and dark and also very brave because telling that kind of story you risk turning off a large section of your audience. That's true. But yeah. that that zone of courage, that risk, that's where the good movies are made. That's exactly why the original Star Wars took off, because when he was trying to make it, everybody thought, what is this Flash Gordon crap you're trying to do? <laughs> right. So uh, just out of curiosity, what's your favorite Star Wars battle? I mean, is it the one in Rogue One or like, say, Death Star, or like a, the, the one of the, the original Death Star or Hoth? Or... Oh, no, I, I would say the Hoth, the Imperial Walkers. Okay. I mean, because that has that has everything. That doesn't only have action; it has the the suspense, mm -hmm. and you've got to wonder what is that like to be a rebel infantry in that ice trench and feeling the ground shake under your feet and know that they're coming. Yeah, I like how the book actually has a couple of chapters just devoted to to Hoth, like one just on the strategy, one and just like what it feels like, to, like you said, like what it feels like to be an actual you know soldier on the ground kind of thing. Oh yeah, and and that's one of the reasons I I loved it because you really did feel that it was it also was a three dimensional battle. It was mm -hmm. air, space, and land, which you don't really see in a lot of the battles. They're usually space battles mm -hmm. or they're small unit tactics on the ground, but to combine them all, I thought was great. Yeah, I'm sure, definitely. Um, just sort of more of a leadership question for you. In The Last Jedi, do you agree with Admiral Holdo's decision to withhold information from Poe about where the fleet was going? I do. I do. I mean, I, I thought she did what she had to do. I thought that she was doing what she needed to do to protect the Empire. And I think that also, it speaks to the leadership conundrum mm -hmm. that you can't always explain what you're doing. Uh, you you have to make these command decisions that are unpopular. 
and you get a sense of why the stars on your shoulder are so heavy and why so many people don't want the job. Right, right. Just out of curiosity, you, um, I noticed, I also understand that you're a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm just curious how that came about. It came about, it was, it was a long journey to get there. Uh, when my book World War Z came out, I was asked to speak at the Naval War College because World War Z had become required reading there. Oh, cool. And at first, yeah, but, but at first I thought, you have the wrong guy. <laughs> you, you, I mean, you, if, if you, I think if you YouTube my first time speaking there, I think I'm literally saying, are you sure you got the right guy? Are, are you sure you didn't screw up the paperwork and there's like some Lieutenant Commander Max Brooks wandering around Comic-Con saying, why am I here? And so... From that, I must have done a good enough job because they asked me to come back. Then I got invited to strategic studies groups and speak at other military events. And then I got a fellowship at the Atlantic Council, the Brent Scowcroft Center. And then one of the strategic studies groups I spoke at, I, a young captain, John Spencer, mm -hmm. would later be a founding member of the Modern War Institute. And he tapped me to come on board. Gotcha. So what is your current role now? Uh, right now, I am a, a non-resident fellow right. at the Modern War Institute, and as a civilian, I try not to wade too far into the military weeds because we got enough of those people. <laughs> gotcha. You, you don't need me to talk about that. What, what I try to do is talk about what I do know about, which is being a civilian, house and the civilian issues, which will become military issues. I talk about the. The crises of today, economic, social, political, technological, that will become the military issues of tomorrow. And the, those are the issues we need to start thinking about today. Got it. Cool. Okay. And I was reading in the book that you um, – that actually, put it this – for those folks who haven't read the book, just to give the, the general listener an idea, our listeners an idea, how did Strategy Strikes Back come about? Uh, two words. Matthew Cavanaugh. Mm -hmm. Mac, this is all Matt Cavanaugh. This is his idea. Uh, he was a non-resident fellow as well. This was his first year got it. At, at the Atlantic Council. And we started talking and he said, listen, I got this. I got this idea. I want it. He said, when I'm trying to teach the cadets about strategy and get them interested, I use Star Wars metaphors. And that's the only time I notice them get excited. <laughs> He said, so what do you think about if we did – if we got a bunch of people together and we all wrote about strategy from the lens of pop culture, you know, whatever whatever TV shows or books or movies that are out there? Right. And I said, I said that's a great idea, but I said, why not just stick with Star Wars because it pairs it down and we know everybody's seen it because right. Star Wars, it's not just seen universally around the world. It's also been around long enough that the the respected gravitas laden admirals and generals of today were themselves horny teenagers when a new hope came out <laughs> so everybody gets it it's it's a universal language gotcha and so i understand that you along with matt Kavanaugh and john amble and jane gates edited the, edited the book how did you divide that labor how did that work work out uh, we, we just worked as a team. You know, they, they just sent in 
we reached out to as many people as we could. When I say we, it's really those people because they're wired into the military networks. And I didn't realize how small the military thinkers club is. And when I say thinkers, I don't mean lack of intelligence. Right. I mean just the the military strategic uh, intellectual society. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't include – that's not just the military. That's people in the intelligence service, mm-hmm. uh, diplomacy, uh, the, the sheepdogs. The people who are popping tums while the rest of us are binging something new on Netflix. Gotcha. <laughs> it's a it's a small group, and they know everybody. They know each other, so cool. the the credit really goes to them for building the team of writers. And how did you go about conceiving and writing your essay, "The Case for Planet Building on Endor"? Well, for me, uh, Planet Building on Endor comes from something I've been following my whole life. I was a kid. I was I was a high school kid when we were fighting the Soviets. And I remember we had two members of the Reagan administration come to my school and talk to my civics class about the courage that President Reagan had to give Stinger missiles to the Mujahideen. Yay. And then (laughs) and we kicked those commies right out of there. And that was great. Hooray. Hooray for our side. And nobody thought about what to rebuild, how to rebuild this shattered country that we had helped shatter. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Uh, There's a a great scene in that movie, um, Charlie Wilson's War. Yeah. When Tom Hanks is sort of sitting there dumbfounded when when he says, uh, wait a minute, aren't you – now that we've won, how are we going to rebuild? And I'm yelling at the screen like, you just thought of this? (laughs) So it wasn't a shock to me in college when I watched Afghanistan descend into turmoil. And out of this turmoil, you could see the rising power of the Taliban. I remember actually reading about how a little girl was raped at a checkpoint and that sort of lit the fuse. And people said, enough, no more corruption, no more chaos, no more violence. Anybody who's going to make the streets safe at night. And the Taliban came in. And then I followed the Taliban in the 90s. Uh, so none of, none of this was a shock mm-hmm. when we finally went into Afghanistan and, and, and people in the government were scratching their heads saying, gee, well, how did all this happen? Uh, and I wanted to tell this story, how we blew it, how we lost the peace. And so I thought Endor was perfect because you have an out-of-the-way world uh, just like Afghanistan, out of the way, mm-hmm. with primitive people, which the British used to actually call the Afghans the fuzzy wuzzies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, primitive and simple and condescending. I think Hans Solo even says, oh, short help is better than no help. Right. <laughs> uh, and yet these primitive Stone Age people kicked the crap out of the empire. But I always thought, what do you do after the party? You know, after we're banging on the stormtroopers' heads and singing Nub Nub mm-hmm. and and – did we just leave? Did did the did the rebellion just leave Endor destroyed, and and fragile Ewok society shattered, uh, and and nothing except mountains of discarded imperial weapons? I mean that was Afghanistan. So mm-hmm. I thought, why not write a letter to the Imperial Senate, or the I'm sorry the Republic Senate, saying, listen, I, I know this is a wonderful moment, hooray for our side, but. We cannot abandon our allies. We have to put a lot more sweat and tears and treasure back into this world because if we don't, they're going to descend into chaos 
and they may end up becoming our enemies someday. Right, right. It's interesting that how some folks talk about um, the military always trains to fight like the last war. Well, you know, the, the problem, you know, we used to be really good at this. You know, we used to have two armies. Army A would go in and beat the enemy. Mm-hmm. But Army B was waiting on Victory Day. And Army B was made up of engineers, doctors, school teachers, and they would come in and they would rebuild and they would build bridges, emotional bridges to children. Mm-hmm. And those children would then grow up to become the leaders of those countries. And those countries would feel a deep psychological bond when they see the stars and stripes. And anybody who doubts that looks should look at Western Europe, Japan, South Korea. Right. Uh, it's expensive and it's frustrating, but it works. And then we forgot about Army B. And then it just became about Army A. And we pulled off the down the statue of Saddam. And then I remember literally watching CNN when some, um, I think it was a company commander saying, yeah, the next day where there was a whole group of people coming to my command post and saying, who's going to clean up our garbage now? Right, right, right. So I guess, so I guess that whole mission accomplished thing was kind of... <laughs> a no, little... I mean, it, and the truth is you cannot blame uh, just Bush because the I think the much bigger cock-up, the much bigger... A failure of nation building mm-hmm. was Russia. It was Russia. Uh, I was there. I was there in 94 and I watched this imploding society and they were waiting. They were waiting for us. They were waiting for a Marshall Plan because their attitude was, hey, you beat us. Now you're responsible for us. Right. And and we didn't do what we should have done to prove to the young generation of up and coming Russians that our system works capitalism and democracy works and here's why and if we had done that in the 90s those kids would be running russia now but we didn't stagnation chaos and then putin came along with an iron fist and said i'll protect you and they said okay czar you got it and he went back to the the, he said look look let look back to how when we used to be strong kind of thing right right because he said look i can't promise you prosperity but I promise you, you will be safe again. And to the Russian psyche, that's hugely important. And we could have stopped that. You always loved having like 2020 hindsight behind your back, don't you? But, but you know, we used to be good at, at 2020. We used to be excellent. We understood, okay, 1945, uh, we're done. VE Day, we're ready to go. We got to rebuild Germany. Uh, we got to rebuild all of Europe. Oh my God, the Marshall Plan. Japan, the same thing. The brilliance of saying, okay, we can't just rebuild Japan as Montana. It's mm-hmm. Japan. Mm-hmm. Keep the emperor, just modify him a little bit. South Korea, same thing. We used to be the greatest nation builders since the Romans. Even better, because it wasn't for self-interest. It was a genuine partnership. And we have somehow forgotten that. How? What What do you think allowed us to forget that? What was it? What, what, what was it? What brought about the disconnect, do you think? Honestly, I think what happened was uh, human nature. People just get lazy and they forget the past. Because remember, the the builders, the nation builders uh, who saved Western Europe and Japan and South Korea, they grew up seeing what happened after World War I. So they saw what happens when the victors return to isolationism and they leave the vanquished 
to stew in their own defeat. And they said, we cannot, for the sake of our children, repeat the mistakes of our fathers. But then the children grew up and didn't remember that. And they just thought, hey, the Cold War is over. Oh, my God. There's a new invention. It's called the Internet. You can see naked people on your computer. (laughs) Wow. It's a peace dividend. (laughs) That's the peace dividend. Naked on your computer. And that is exactly what we did in the 90s. And then Steve Jobs went running around and saying, I have a great new invention. Have you cured AIDS? Well, no. Have you cured cancer? Well, no. Are you going to get us to Mars or reinvent something other than oil? Well, no. What are you doing? I'm going to put 100 songs in your pocket. Wow! Right. So that's what happened. (laughs) So what do you think the book can do for, I guess, current and future, uh, current leaders mainly, but also for future leaders? Well, the book has two purposes. The book is, is reaching two different audiences. From a military point of view, it's reaching... Uh, It's reaching the strategic leadership class because the truth is, you know, you've got – it takes all types in in the military and I've met them all. You know, Mm -hmm. there are the very deep, broad thinkers who read voluminously, who go outside the wire and talk to people from completely different backgrounds, the really broad thinkers, the Eisenhowers, the Mm -hmm. Colin Powells. Uh, the the great brains, right? And th- and then there are just the people who just get promoted. And they charge right ahead, and uh, in the words of General Scales, uh, retired, uh, he calls them dumb as dirt. <laughs> and there's both types, you know. There's General Marshall, and then there's the dumb as dirt. And what my military colleagues are trying to doing, trying to do with the book, is bring their colleagues up to the level of Marshall. Gotcha. And, and they're trying to do that by starting young cadets, you know, at West Point who have 25 hour work days and they don't want to read with the, with a few minutes, precious minutes of freedom they got. So, right. hey, here's a, here's a Star Wars book and you learn as you go. So that's one reason. Mm-hmm. Another reason is for civilians because we have this huge gap. You know, the, the American people are completely divorced from the people who protect them. That's true. And that would be – yeah, it's completely – you know, it's not like World War II where everybody had served or whatnot. Uh, you can go your whole life never having to pick up a newspaper, know anything about current events, never meeting someone in uniform. Thank you for your service. That's it. Yeah. And you know what? That would be great if we lived in a dictatorship of the ruling class who just said, OK, we'll do the hard lifting and you get bread and circuses. But but we don't. We're a republic. We vote. And so – we have to educate ourselves as private citizens about these big issues that eventually will come down to affecting us. Right. So how do you do it? I mean, I've been studying this stuff since I was in high school. And even I go right to sleep if I read Clausewitz or Alfred Mahan. <laughs> That's the one book I actually was interested in reading. All the other books did put me to sleep, but that one book because I'm more of a na- I'm more of interested in that like the naval side of things, and that right. book actually sort of sort of did sort of I, it made sense to me more than like say the army or the air force style books did to me. But try that with your fellow Americans. I, that would good be, point. Point taken. Yeah, oh, that would be suicidal. Right. If, if I go to my fellow Americans and if they go, wow, you know, I'm really trying to get a, a handle on the news right now. And I really don't get it. And if I go, aha. Well, 
read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Uh, that's not going to work. Yeah, that'll make him conk out. <laughs> yeah, but but if people say to me, listen, there's an election coming up. Uh, there's all these big uh, for, current events, foreign affairs issues on the news. I don't understand it. I don't have a frame of reference. How do I wrap my brain around this so when I get in the voting booth, I know what I'm doing? I could say to them, hey, you like Star Wars? Here's something. Here's something that will help explain all these complex Rubik's Cubes. Uh, that we call geopolitics. Yeah, I guess it's also one of the things. One of the uh, one of the things around that is as well, as well is that um, at least the United States doesn't have a draft anymore. So as you're saying, there's this whole military class that do, you know we've got a volunteer military where people volunteer, but that means a whole swath <clears throat> of the popul- rest of the population just as you know has no idea of what uh, you know, what the military life is what it's no. like to serve you know serve your country and and, all. and so in a sense we can some people might argue that we can go on these foreign wars because we it's, you know we you know Joe Blow isn't really going to be affected by it because he or she isn't going, going to be affected you know they don't have oh, the yeah. prospect of being drafted you're 100% right that's exactly right because what used to happen was the cost of the war was visited on every single citizen. Even if you didn't have a son or a father serving in the military, mm-hmm. you had to pay a war tax. Your taxes went up because you're at war and you felt it. Uh, there were war bonds that people that people bought voluntarily. Uh, there was also a change of lifestyle. You know, I mean, I grew up. Uh, I'm a little weird because I'm a Gen Xer and my parents are Depression era. Yeah, I'm, I'm Sam. Same here. Yeah. So, so I grew up hearing about. My mother having being mortified, this good little Catholic girl having to graduate in a short skirt because cloth was rationed oh. and rationing tin and rationing sugar, things like that. Your lifestyle was affected. And then here comes the Iraq war. And let's face it, if there wasn't oil in the Middle East, we wouldn't have been in the Middle East. Right. And to, to watch our kids fighting and dying in the Middle East while douchebags are driving Hummers – Mm-hmm. in America, these gas-guzzling Hummers, without any thought that there is a connection between gas mileage and wars in the Middle East, is mm-hmm. unconscionable. And I think if we were to start to revisit the cost of war on the population, I think we'd have a lot less wars. I forget which uh, congressman it is who I think consistently almost every year puts in a resolution in Congress calling for the draft to be reinstated for that particular – for that same reason. Well, the thing is you don't even need a draft. Be, and the truth is you don't even want a draft. You don't want a bunch of drafty kids. General uh, – once again, General Scale said it perfectly. He says that's murder. You don't want to put a bunch of, of barely trained, unmotivated draftees on the firing line because they'll get slaughtered. Got it. But if you – if you say, look, there's going to be a war tax, your taxes are going to go up, and that trip to Disney World is not going to happen. And by the way, that that big old Ford F-150 you were going to buy, uh-uh, too much gas mileage. If we make all Americans feel the hurt of conflict, not only are there going to be less conflicts, mm-hmm. the conflicts that we do fight are going to be really necessary where every mom and pop is going to sit around the kitchen table and be like, wow, is this, is this really important? Right. Because we're all going to feel it. 
That's yeah. That, that's a good. That's a really good point. I mean, this book. I, I really enjoyed reading the book just because it had so many different perspectives on you know from leadership to you know, uh, the boots on the ground to um, looking back, looking at uh, you know, learning from learn, learning from wars, learning from your from mistakes uh, from a Star Wars point of view. So I can only hope that people take this book and just say, look, this is the, from a certain point of view, this is what could happen to us in real life. Oh, we, and you know what? We're not the first people to do this. The first person to have ever done this, and he doesn't get enough credit, is Kevin Smith. Really? Because I, I don't know if you remember in Clerks, he actually has a conversation about all the independent contractors who get killed on the Death Star in <laughs> Return of the Jedi. <laughs> right. Because he, he does a whole point where they're talking about, like, listen, the Death Star was, was behind schedule. So they had to have a ton of independent contractors fitting pipes and pulling wire, putting up drywall, and they all got blown up. And that's not cool. And then the other side of the coin is, yeah, but you're still part of the war effort. So you are a, you're a target whether you realize it or not. And mm-hmm. Kevin Smith could not have realized this. But that was exactly the rationale that Osama bin Laden used for 9-11. Right. He said, he said, your country is responsible, not your military, not your CIA, you're all targets. Right, right. And, and, and I, yeah, so go on. Go, no, go ahead. Yeah, I, 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 you can see why people were so shocked when that actually, when 9-11 came around, it's like, what? You mean? Right. <laughs> right. And, and people, people were like, wait a minute, I'm not part of this. And it's like, yeah, you are because you're all part of the interconnected system that is a liberal democracy. And th- that's the thing is like when people say, oh, I love the American people, but not their government. No, 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 no. You can say that about Russia or China or Iran. You can't say that about us. We all vote. We're all responsible. So we all make a choice to, to be here, to live here and to contribute. And because we are all responsible, we all have to kick in in some way. Right, right. I'm, I'm not sure if you, when you, actually, going back to what you're talking about, what Kevin Smith and talking about all the, those independent contractors, um, have you ever, I don't know if you ever had the chance to read Lost Stars by Claudia Gray? No, I it's, never did. It's, it's great. It's a Star Wars novel. It's it's basically like sort of Romeo and Juliet style a little bit. It's uh, two kids who, who grow up on this, you know, off, you know, uh, outer rim, off-world planet. Um, one of them, they both, you know, they're both really good pilots. They both join them, join the Imperial uh, Army military, and then one of them is disenchanted by what the what the Empire is doing and defects to the rebellion. And um. and so and it it it, it basically it it uh, takes you through all the events of A New Hope, Empire, and uh, and Return of the Jedi, but like from these two two young people's point of view. And of course, you know when the when she's not on the Death Star when it's when it explodes, but she sees the you know the the the, the, the repercussions of that within like the people who survived. It's like wait, we have friend we had friends on the Death Star kind of thing, or you know. Oh wow! And, and then there's also you know there's also an Alderanian who is in the in the Imperial military, and his his planet is destroyed, and he's like he doesn't know what you know how to how to react from this. Oh so, wow! I, it, it, I highly recommend it. This is it, it. There's like a more there's a more you know of course a love angle, but there's also like the whole both sides angle of like okay you know just because you know you're you've got two people who you know demonize demonize each other it's still two people fighting you know fighting a war kind of thing isn't that isn't that what geopolitics all comes down to isn't that just about 
it, it's it's personal. It's always personal. Right. And, and I think this is the problem is sometimes I go to these these military conferences and especially when they bring in like scientists, they're, they're the worst. <laughs> they're just the worst. They're they're so removed mm-hmm. and they're so in love with their technology. And all I'm hearing is a flashback to 1930s physicists saying, well, we can split the atom. What could possibly go wrong? Right. And it really does come down to personal. I remember hearing a, a, an American soldier in Afghanistan talking about how hard it was. And he said, look, the people that I deal with, the locals, they don't care about Islamic jihad. They don't care about uh, Western democracy versus a theocracy. They just want to get their pomegranates to market. And whoever helps them do that will have their loyalty. And that's all it comes down to. Right. Right. That's really great. I mean, all, not just that, but also I'm looking, thinking of like you, if you look at the, the atom bomb, you're just talking about like, well, hey, we can split, we can split the atom. Looking back at uh, like Rogue One and how they yeah. and that whole the use of the Death Star, you know, when it was just like you know single reactor ignition kind of thing, and and just that alone is basically the equivalent of you know a weapon of mass destruction. Oh yeah, and you and you can see uh, Ursos, you know, he having a, a real crisis with this. It's like mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it, which most scientists don't. Most scientists. They never think about it till the end. That's why you had like the Federation of, of American Scientists. Science. Yeah. Yeah. FAS. Yeah. yeah. You can't build this weapon and then suddenly be shocked that they're going to drop this weapon on children. Genie's out of the bottle. Yeah. The genie. You're making this, and you're make, and you know you should know what's happening. And the conferences I go to, they're so in love with their technology, they can't even imagine that uh, a terrorist group. And this is I heard this at, at one where David Kilcullen was speaking and he said, you know, terrorists are taking iPads and Google Earth and using it to target mortars and rockets. And this is off the shelf technology. Right. And so we're all responsible for the eventual repercussions of our actions. Heck, you see, you see, you uh, just right now, you'll see a whole bunch of uh, you, you, you can tell what like, what a military base in, in Afghanistan looks like just by tracking all those all those folks who are running around with you know, with Fitbits and uploading their data to Strava, yes. and you can see exactly what their what, what the outline of their base looks like. And you know what? We used to understand that. We used to understand that every victory garden, if you plant a victory garden in your backyard, right? Every potato that you grow doesn't have to be bought from the store. And the potato that would have been bought at the store is going to the front to feed a soldier. We understood how everything was connected and how the ripples went through society at the smallest, most personal level. And we've completely forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's uh, definitely a lesson to be learned. And your book definitely, most certainly, puts that lesson out there. And I hope a lot of people get to read it. Well, you know what? I, I, I hope so. And, and I think that, you know, as a group, as a group, I, it was good to have a, a diverse group of not just military and civilian, but also men and women. Right. And I think that I think that's very important. And I think it's I think it was very important. Jane was amazing because Jane was always reminding us dudes because, you know, we forget. <laughs> right. You know, we're dudes. Duh. Yeah. And she was saying, you know, guys, y'all need to remember there's a lot of women in the military, and there's also a lot of women writing in the science fiction world. So True. we need to reach out to these ideas, which come from completely different 
narratives. And I think that was that was so important. That's and, d- yeah. Know, Go ahead. Sorry. And ironically, Star Wars was one of the first movies to do that. You know, Princess Leia. You would you would think that America would be a completely gender equal country uh, if you started with Princess Leia in the seventies. I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> It's going to take a little, little longer than that, clearly. I, it really has. And I mean, I was I remember as a kid, you know, I grew up with that. I grew up with with Princess Leia. I grew up with Ellen Ripley. Mm-hmm. So when I'm watching Twilight, I'm like, what? What do you what do you do? Wait a minute. No, women yeah. aren't supposed to, they're not supposed to be waiting to be saved. Terminator 2. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. You got Sarah Connor. What a great journey Sarah Connor had. Yeah. Women are supposed to blast through the grate into the garbage chute and say somebody has to save our skins. Right. <laughs> That's actually one of the criticisms I heard recently of Solo is that this was a very, a very, very um, – basically a movie that was written by dudes. And it's, it, it lacked that you – know, it's just one of the things where it sort of lacked that fe- – like not a feminine touch but an understanding of, of these other characters or female characters that they just didn't – they sort of glossed over. I can see that. I can see how you would see that uh, the validity of an argument like that. Even though Star Wars, in general, I think has been very good about that stuff, mm-hmm. uh, because you think about all the the strong female characters that you have. You have Jin Erso. You have Rey. Uh, you have Laura Dern's character. Who, I mean, right. my God, when she turns that ship around, <laughs> you have you have Mon Mothma, uh, and and some bad ones too. You have Captain Phasma. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's – I'm not saying it's perfect, but statistically I think it's a little better than what we usually find. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get to the point where we're not just called, you know, referring to them as strong female characters and simply as female characters who have these who, – who are, who are you know, interesting and complex and everything else, right? Well, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice just to – I mean, boy, are we not there yet, but it, no. it would – it's a nice goal to imagine that someday we won't be so conscious about it and we'll just write the best characters. Yeah. And whatever skin color, whatever gender, whatever group that we think is important, they're just people, we, and, which is what we're supposed to be. I remember George Romero talks about that in Night of the Living Dead and because he got, he got a lot of kudos for being one of the first movies to have a black man – as the as the hero right and they and they said wow how did you decide to hire a, a black hero and he said i didn't hire a black hero i hired the best actor i held open auditions and the best <laughs> guy happened to be black and isn't that how we're supposed to is that the goal we the content of our character why isn't that so, why is that such a strange concept for so many people you know i know we're we ain't there yet, but we we got to keep we got to keep fighting for it. And hopefully, Star Wars through the next few years will help us uh, realize that more and more. You think? I hope so. And 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 I think what was so great about Star Wars was it did it did inspire a whole generation of women of my generation. Right, that's true. Princess Mine too. Leia. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I mean, how many women were dressed as Princess Leia? Uh, I remember even writing for Saturday Night Live. We had a sketch, a Star Wars sketch, and I remember Tina saying. I'm Princess Leia. She's like, I call dibs on Princess Leia. That's all. 
Well, now at least at least nowadays we'll have you know you know Generoso people women Generoso or Ray or Ray or Grand Admiral you know Ray Sloan or you know all these all these other really fascinating complex characters that happen to be that, you know happen to be female that that young girls can look up to and and you know see that they can achieve something or maybe they didn't get to get to before. I'm curious to see what's going to happen with Kira because obviously they're leaving it open. Oh my goodness sequel. gracious! Yeah. Yeah. So, um, who is she going to? She's she was probably the most complex character in the whole movie. She was the one who went through uh, the longest journey emotionally. She's the one who really is the most multifaceted. Uh, I'll be very curious to see where they take her. For me, actually, that I agree. But for me, my my big one is Emphis Nest. I want a I want a backstory uh, on her, like where she, how she grew up. She sort of reminds me of like Mad, the Mad Max style, kind of like how Phasma grew up. If you if you have a chance, you need to read Delilah Dawson's Phasma novel. It's great. Uh, it's, you, yeah. it, she's, and, it, and it is very very her her upbringing is very very much sort of you know a, a Mad Max style living on a this remote planet kind of thing where you know, it's very very brutal brutal. And so I'm wondering. I would love to see how Emphis Ness grew up. I'd love to like either re- maybe have them do like a TV series on the new streaming se- service that Disney's going to have next year, or you know, a comic, or uh, or or even a book series just on oh, all yeah, the, the background. Phasma. Yeah, Phasma. We have Phasma. We, like you know, Emphis Nest. You know, from Nest, yeah, yeah, just see how you know. I'm an idiot. I'm, I, I consider myself a liberal and very open-minded and everything else. But did I think that Emphis Ness was was a female? No. And so that just no, of course not. And so I did. And <clears throat> that's one of the things that really that that I loved about that. And so that's what really intrigued me about that character is what she like. How did she grow up? And you know, she she even says in the movie that she learned from her mother. What was her mother like? What you know? How, what what's her backstory? I would really really love to see you know whatever Star Wars, whatever Lucasfilm or or Disney Publishing or Del Rey Books can you know give us for that. You know, and that I think that goes to another secret weapon that the U.S. military has, which is not very secret, which is our diversity. Right. You know, we we bring it, and diversity is not just as liberal as I am. It's not just a liberal, touchy feely torch. It's also a, a military weapon because you have people coming from different cultural backgrounds with different ideas. Right. And as far back as World War One, you had two Choctaw guys saying, "Hey, if we speak to each other in our native language." Uh, the Germans aren't going to know what we're saying, and that was the template for the Navajo Code Talkers. Right. And as a guy whose uncle was in a B-17 shot down over Regensburg, oh I can tell you had the Tuskegee Airmen been flying escort, he never would have been a POW, and his health wouldn't have been ruined the rest of his life. Oh, wow. So, yeah, our diversity is our – I think our greatest strength on the battlefield. I mean, heck, you, you, I'm blanking on the name of the teams that would go out in Afghanistan. There were like I think female engagement teams, FETs, cultural, <laughs> cultural support teams, which is such a, it's so duh. I mean, it makes perfect it's, sense. Yeah. It's, it's half the, if you're dealing with this country, which half the population just happens to be female, they'll, they will respond better to women soldiers. You think? Sheesh. Right. <laughs> and we've got, we, we've got half our population is female. Half the population of the world is female. To not utilize that, and when I hear male soldiers talk about, well, we can't use, you can't have women in the infantry because they're too weak to pick up an injured comrade because they're not big and tall and seven feet like the rest of us. <laughs> to which I say, you tell that to the ghost of Audie Murphy, right? Who was who was like he was my height. He was like five. I'm about five seven. He was probably so like five five. <laughs> yeah. Audie Murphy was a tiny little guy. Um, <laughs> 
Henry Johnson, one of the the, the greatest heroes of World War One, little tiny dude took on like 40 Germans with a knife. So don't talk to me about physical size if that's your argument against women in battle. Right, right. It just, yeah. And, and, yeah, and by the way, the greatest sniper of all time was... The Soviet, Soviet one, right, yeah, yeah. Soviet woman had more kills than any American sniper in any war. Right. So that whole argument is pretty much moot. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, in, and in Star Wars, one of my favorite characters is uh, Little Rose. Oh, yeah. I and what I loved about Rose, it wasn't the fact that she was a woman. It was the fact that she was a nobody. She was, wasn't, she was like a, a maintenance technician. She was like a janitor. Mm-hmm. And I love that notion of just like coming from nothing and being somebody, making a choice and rising on your own will and your own strength. Right. And I also love the fact that she, if you read the, no the novelization, she was also one of the people, one of the reasons why all those transport ships that, that left to go to crate and were, were uh, shrouded, were, were cloaked, she helped engineer the cloaking, cloaking technology onto those ships. Oh, that's awesome. So, I, yeah. She didn't, she didn't die at the end of the movie, did she? No, she was alive. At least last night, last night he he brought her back alive. So they they had her like on a stretcher, and that was it. That's all. That's and, and, what I thought. Yeah, and he he tucked her in like on the Millennium Falcon as they were leaving. So yeah. All right, thank yeah. God. Okay, because <laughs> th that's a character we need to revisit. Definitely, and uh, there's also a couple of books on based on her as well. If you just um, blanking on the name of them right now, um, one's called Cobalt Squadron, and the other which is talk about Rose and the the, the Tico sisters, Rose and her sister as well. Um, and there's another one that um, that escapes me right now, but yeah, if you have a chance to read some of those, some of the uh, the ancillary novels, they're great. Oh, that's cool. I'll check that out. Thanks, dude. Yeah. Well, this has really been awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, you can always find me on on Twitter, uh, Max Brooks, and you can always find me at Max Brooks Author on Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much again. Again, we've been speaking with Max Brooks, co-editor of Strategy Strikes Back, How Star Wars Explains Modern Military Conflict. Back to you, Stephen Aswara. <laughs> All right, John Liang, thank you so much for that conversation on military and Star Wars with Max Brooks. If you are at DragonCon this weekend, you can catch John Liang, uh, Max Brooks, my co-host Swara Saleh, all down there. And Max Brooks will be on a Saturday panel on this very topic. This has been a bonus episode of Beltway Banthas. We will be back next week with more. And until then, may the force be with you, always.